Okay, friends, Andy Jenkins at the Hilltop. Uh, I am in this episode. I'm, I'm going to tell you this. In the previous episode, I thought, hey, we're going to go for maybe eight uh, talks in this series about grace. And in the previous, I'm looking at my notes right here. I made it basically uh, one page, two pages, uh, almost two and a half, almost two and a half through the notes. And so, uh, you know what? I'm going to let it take what it takes. Uh, in the previous episode, I really talked about this idea that the sound of heaven is a sound of joy, that God's not angry, he's absolutely at delight, that he's not perturbed, he's at peace, and it's not just this peace that's, you know, just kind of neutral out there, like, okay, he's chill, he's doing his thing, but the scripture paints this picture of a God who rejoices over you with singing, and that when you get closer to his countenance, what you see is not these, these massive rules, you actually see there is this intense relationship. Now, uh, right here, I'm sitting in our living room. Uh, we, we've been cleaning out some stuff in the office, and so uh, Beth's out there doing some work, and I thought, well, I'll just do some of my own stuff, you know, in here while she's doing that. And so the great thing about this iPad, this microphone, you can just take them anywhere you want to go. Um, so I'm here. Uh, this is in the morning when I get up, drink coffee, and I've got this, uh, I've got the Bible I really like to read in, and then I've got this thicker study Bible, like kind of both, you know, you know, like you got your favorite versions of stuff. And so I was reading through the study Bible this week. Uh, that's kind of where I'm at. I've been going back through, uh, sinking it way in the Old Testament, working just, you know, I'll, I'll read for a certain amount of time. And sometimes I get two, three pages, sometimes you know, I'm going through quick, but I'm just kind of sinking into it and saying, all right, what does it say? How do I apply this? What does it even really mean? And you get in here and some of the stuff in the Old Testament is ultra confusing. And so we just brush it off and go, oh, different time and place, not relevant. And I, I get it. <laughs> I've, I've, I've done that. Uh, but there's this, this great verse. I was reading it and I, I stumbled because I was in Leviticus you know, where it talks about sacrifices and, you know, what to do about if you come upon a dead body and all of these things you can't do that you can do. Uh, I even wrote a little bit about it in one of my recent top seven blog posts, just kind of a, a thing that I observed. Here's what I, I want to highlight to you is Leviticus 19.28. Uh, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. No tattoos. And so it's easy to come to the scripture and go, all right, there's, you know, rules. So God's all about rules. He's all about rules that don't make any sense. He's all about, you know, ritual. And so I really started looking at that. Okay, why is it no tattoos? Because, you know, right now, uh, Beth and I have 10 kids, and I know of at least four of them that have tattoos. And I'm not so sure that none of the others do. I mean, and even the littlest ones, like they get Sharpie markers and they draw on themselves, right? Like faking a tattoo. Why is this, quote, rule in the Old Testament about no tattoos. 
And when you search it and you look into it, here, here's the reason why. It makes great sense. Is There are two predominant reasons why in that culture people would get a tattoo. Uh, the number one reason you would get a tattoo, and I think these were kind of equal ranking. Like it's not like more did this and more did that, or you know this one's more dangerous, or like here, here's the reality. Two reasons. Reason number one: if you were worshiping a false god, or in that case, the Old Testament says they're demons, you would get a tattoo and allege yourself or lead yourself or pledge yourself that's probably a better word to that demon so right here god's saying hey i don't want you to get a tattoo because i don't want you to be following some horrible spirit that is there to kill steal and destroy you you know goodness that makes sense the number two reason is people would be tattooed in the same sense that cattle today are branded. In that culture, you could be bought and sold as a slave. In that culture, if you owed a debt, you could even sell yourself as a slave. And when you did, in that culture, many people would be tattooed. And so God is saying, no, no, no. Don't walk in a slave mentality. Don't be enslaved by anything. And you think when this rule was given... In the previous months, just before this rule was received by Moses to give to the people, the children of Israel had been slaves in a country that worshipped a plethora of false gods, demons. And here, this rule is, no, 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 don't, don't allege yourself to a false god that's really just an idol that's dead or a demon. And don't pledge yourself to being a slave, to being in bondage to anything. And you, and you look at that and you go, oh, okay, this makes so much more sense. But unless we knew that, if we came to the scripture thinking that God is about rules, that he's about rituals, that he's about regulations, and not primarily relationship, we might get a different idea. You see, like what you think about God, it truly matters. Uh, I remember talking to people. Uh, this has really gotten to be popular in, it's it's not a slam on a certain kind of church. It's just this seems to be where you see it the most often is in some of these hipsterish churches. They will say things that have a inkling of sounding true, but then you really break it down and it's just stupid. <laughs> Like, I don't know how else to, to say it. Like, I'm not necessarily calling that person stupid. I'm just saying that statement is dumb. Okay, so here's one. Uh, I love Jesus. I hate theology. I, I've heard that. Man, I, I've heard that ad nauseum. And, and for sure, you know, there are guys that can use theology and systematic structures of thought. I mean, like bullets, and they can become abrasive when they talk about it. And I get it. Like, they'll make you hate theology. Um, however, I, you know, people misuse sex and fire and misuse money all the time. But, I mean, you know, you, you still, you don't throw out sex because people misuse it. You don't say, well, I'm never going to use fire or have a fire pit or cook with fire because people misuse fire. 
you don't say, well, I'm going to stop using money because people abuse money and make it their God. No. And in the same way, theology, just because people misuse it doesn't mean that we just chunk it out. Theology means this. Theo, God, uh, from the word God there. Ology, study of. Now, theology is the study of God. It's what we believe and think about God just in the same way that biology, bio, life, ology, study of life, geology, you know, the rocks and the formations, earth, study of earth. Theology is what we really think and believe about God. And if you're believing and thinking, you practically live out what you believe about God every day. If you're thinking and believing that God is against you, or that he's just some distant deity, oh goodness, that's going to affect your relationships with him. It's going to affect your relationships with other people. It's going to affect how you even read rules like tattoos. Uh, let, let me, which, by the way, like I have no problem with tattoos. I think in that culture, that's just what that meant. And so it's like, hey, yeah, absolutely. If today everybody that had a tattoo was you know, an indentured servant somewhere, we'd probably look at that differently and go, oh, yeah, we, we don't want to do that. We don't want to look like something we're not, right? Another rule I saw was in relation to touching a dead body. If you touched a dead body, you were now considered unclean, meaning you needed to kind of separate yourself and not go about the grind of going to the tabernacle or going to the temple or going to all these other things that normally you would do. Even going in contact with other people that you might come in contact with at work and all these other places because you had touched a dead body and now you were considered, I mean, we translate it in the English as unclean, but really what they were doing is not, quote, unclean. It was Pause, step out of the normal grind of everyday life. Now, i tell you this. Think about when you would touch a dead body. Uh, most of the time, it wouldn't be because you were in a car accident. Uh, most of the time, it wouldn't be in the line of service. Most of the time, it's not because you went to the tombs and, hey, I'm just going to touch a dead body. In that culture, we didn't have hospitals. In that culture, people were born in the house. They died in the house. So what would be your grandparents and even your great-grandparents if they lived that long? You would see them. They would literally live like in the same home or next door or just right there. And so the process of dying, they would be around you and you would be around them. And literally, they would welcome you into this earth and you would be there in most cases to walk them out of this earth into the next life. In other words, by the age that you and I are now, most of us would have touched a dead body, multiple dead bodies. Uh, when I was working in a church, you know, it wasn't uncommon for me to be there uh, in the room when somebody's parents, elderly, were, were dying. I, I've been in the room when people died multiple times. And in those moments... It's so weighty. There's grief and there's glory and there's happiness because, oh goodness, we celebrate this life that we got to enjoy 
and we're so grateful and at the same time there's grief. And so I think what's happening right here with the rule is to step out, to pause, to take a prescribed amount of time to not do the grind, to not show up to work, to not show up to the temple or the tabernacle or the church building, or to to pause and remember and grieve if you need to grieve. But at the same time, grieve with hope. As Paul says that we do. We don't grieve in the same way the world grieves with no hope. Yet at the same time, we do grieve and to acknowledge and go through it because Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. It's almost like you have to go through that mourning to get to the place of comfort. And so when you look at all these rules that were in the Old Testament that God seems to lay out, no tattoos, uh, no, no just going about your business when you've touched the dead body, you step back and you go, oh, oh, these are coming from a place of love that he is truly for us. Like the rules weren't just about the rules. The rules were about the connection. The rules were about the relationships that we have with him, that we have with others and the needs that he knows that we have. In other words, all of it was, is grace. Now, uh, in the book of Galatians, I'm going to pick back up uh, with my notes from the previous. That was like a 13-minute intro, so I'll just see how far we get going on this. Galatians 5.22, the, the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul's in this context. He's talking about, all, you know, people are trying to follow rules in the Galatian church. And he's like, wait, wait hold on. Like, wait, let's, let's, it's not that we're going to put this on automatic autopilot on life. But rather than striving and straining and trying to achieve something, like if we plug into the right view of God, and if we live that relationship from that space, some things just start automatically flowing. Now notice, he says, the fruit of the Spirit. You can't control fruit. Yeah, I got all these trees out in my yard. They just kind of, uh, we were coming up the hill the other day driving. And I told Beth, I said, it's, it's super strange. Like, I remember driving through here. We drive up and down this hill. You know, there's some days we, we're kind of in the house all day because we work from home. But, you know, most days we're, we're in the car going somewhere to do something, a meeting or, you know, something. And all of a sudden, just the trees look full. It just automatically happened. They didn't strain or strive to produce the leaves. They just, it's just all of a sudden there's just this growth. Here's what he's saying. The fruit of the Spirit in your life, it's not a strive, it's not a strain. The fruit of the Spirit in your life, what happens is love, joy, joy. There's that word we saw from last week in the previous episode, joy. Um, that the sound in heaven is joy. That the sound of your Father rejoicing over you with singing is joy. That at the right hand of the Father where Jesus is, is joy pleasure, joy, the fruit of the Spirit happening in your life, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these, there's no law. Against these, there's no rule. 
I remember years ago, I was working with a guy. His name was Brandon. Uh, I was working in a nonprofit. We were helping people that were coming off drugs, off the streets, out of prison, human trafficking. Uh, we could house families in this facility. It was an incredible season um, that I ran with for probably seven, eight years. We had an amazing staff. One of the guys that worked on staff, his name was Brandon. And Brandon oversaw and ran what was called a sozo ministry. Now, sozo, it's a word I'll talk about in a couple episodes. It really is the word in the New Testament that's translated as saved, but it means healed physically, uh, protection physically. It means emotional wholeness. It means forgiveness of sin. It means finding meaning and purpose. Like It is an all-encompassing word that encapsulates so much of what Jesus came to do. That was the name of that inner healing ministry that he was leading. And, you know, this guy, he really exuded joy. And he used to say this phrase. He didn't make it up. He didn't try to take credit for it. I don't even know where he got it. But he so often would say this about walking in the Spirit is, quote, seriousness is not a fruit of the Spirit. And think about that list. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Seriousness is not a fruit of the Spirit. doesn't mean there aren't times we should be serious, but seriousness is not a fruit of the Spirit. C.S. Lewis, uh, the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He wrote this book, The Screwtape Letters. He wrote, oh, so many incredible deep books, he says, joy is the serious business of heaven. Seriousness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is the serious business of heaven. In one of his letters to Timothy, Paul had the son of the faith uh, in the New Testament. Timothy was uh, one of the men that he invested in it was a little bit younger than Paul. He took him on some of his missionary travels. And eventually, Timothy was pastoring a church in Ephesus when Paul was probably imprisoned uh, at that time for preaching the gospel. And Paul writes these letters to his young son in the faith, telling him how to lead his church, giving him some advice, some encouragement, trying to equip him for the journey ahead. And in one of those letters, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 11, he's talking about uh, subscribing and adhering to everything, quote, right here, quote, that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. Now, again, the context right there, it's, he's talking about the laws not made for the righteous, it's made for the unrighteous. So he's, he's kind of contrasting. Hey, the, the rules are there to kind of highlight when people get out of line. If, if you're kind of aligning with your heavenly father, like, hey, don't worry about the rules. Focus on the relationship. And he says, okay, we want to focus on everything that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. That, that word blessed, it's really enlightening. We translate from the Greek language of the New Testament into English. And so when they translate, they're making kind of some, uh, you know, some judgment calls. What does this word mean? What is that word, you know, best, uh, how, how do we best kind of portray what they originally said, what they intended? That word in the Greek language 
is Makarios. Makarios. Makarios, a better translation of that is in the English, happy, <laughs> joyful. Could you imagine reading that verse? And I guess when the translators were putting it in English, they couldn't believe that it would actually say that we want to align with everything that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our happy, joyful God. Ah, you know, see, that links back to what we said in the previous episode. We want to align with everything that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to us by our Makarios, happy, joyful, heavenly Father that is for you, not against you, that has this throne where we saw in Psalms 89, righteousness and peace are the foundation of the throne and justice is at the foundation of the throne. And so is the joyful sound where he literally, as Zephaniah 3 says, rejoices over you with singing. You see? That's so different. Uh, years ago, I grew up in a Baptist church, and when I first started working in a church, I was teaching through books of the Bible. So I would generally teach an Old Testament book and then a New Testament book and then an Old Testament book and a New Testament book. And by virtue of that, what I ended up doing was bumping into some passages that I probably would have uh, you know, avoided. Uh, like the tattoo thing. How? Why, why would you go to the tattoo verse to ever preach a sermon? Or why would you go to the don't touch a dead body verse? But when you're slinging back and forth, just going verse by verse by verse, you end up stumbling upon all of these beautiful treasures that you otherwise would never have tripped over and then had to deal with. And so I remember walking through the New Testament and popping upon all these verses about emotional wholeness and all these verses about physical healing and all of these verses about the Holy Spirit that in the Baptist church, we weren't, we weren't anti that. I just hadn't heard about it. Now, growing up in the Baptist church, I did have and was raised with a predisposition to read the Bible and see what it says and trust the scripture above anyone's interpretation, trust the scripture above, you know, other opinions, trust the scripture above, you know, books that are outside the Bible, like trust what you read in the text. The tension, though, was I was bumping into things in the text that I did not have a grid to understand. And so I reached out to a couple other pastors in the city that were older, wiser, that uh, were not Baptist, that had a leaning towards some of the things that I was bumping into. And uh, yeah, I mean, I called, you know, several guys that were charismatic, that were Pentecostal. And it was astounding because every single guy I called had really no reason to take my phone call. But one after one, they'd pick up the phone and say, hey, oh, yeah, man, I'm glad you called me. I can help you uh, come to my office. You know, do you want to come tomorrow or the next day? And they would carve out time. And I would sit there and ask these questions. And they would give me books that I could go read to help frame what I was reading in Scripture. It was just this incredible, as I, as I think back on it, these you know moments I had with really some guys that, had large churches and took some time to invest in me. Uh, even though some of them 
didn't even know me at that point. Well, one of the gentlemen that I called, his name was Lamar Junkins. His last name, one letter off of my last name. No relation. I reached out to him. He had grown up, was raised, pastored a Baptist church, and then eventually kind of shifted that into a vineyard movement, a vineyard church. Now, vineyard churches, uh, just so you know, uh, they, they were kind of originally set up to pull in the best of Scripture and the best of the Spirit. So they, they are going to do heavy on the Word and heavy on worship. You know, they, they're going to talk about kind of the foundation that's in the Bible and also, hey, let's experience what. So I knew this guy I could probably learn from. And as I talked to him, I mean, I remember sometimes sitting at Ruby Tuesday to have lunch, and we would get there at 11.30 or 12, and we might not leave till 3.30 or 4. And he, he would just leave a big tip for the waitress, and she would continue bringing us refills. He would answer questions and tell me stories and help me frame some of the stuff. And I, I would go read the scripture for a couple weeks, and then I'd call him back, and we would meet again and do it again. And next time we'd be at Pizza Hut for hours. Just this unrush. I mean, it was, it was truly, you know, if I think back through it, to frame it, it was what you read about. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, just this ease about this man. And I remember just kind of him helping me shift some of the theology that God isn't rules, it's relationship. And if there's a rule there, like you need to investigate and go, okay, why did he say that? Because I guarantee you it's bigger than what you think and it's more powerful than what you think. And it's it's about relationship and some depth, not about the rule itself. Like, again, the tattoo thing and the dead body conversation that you and I had earlier. One of the things that he said, one of the phrases is... God is in a good mood. God is in a good mood. And, and I remember hearing that the first time, and, it, and it's like almost something inside of me. Maybe you even feel it right now. I just kind of reacted to it. I mean, like I try to keep it not on my face, like keep it inside, but just thinking like somehow that just doesn't, like I'd always equated God with something uh, more stringent or something more formal. And it's not because I had a distant relationship with my dad growing up. You know, a lot of times people go, well, you perceived God in the same way you perceived your father. I didn't have that kind of, I mean, you know, dad was at every wrestling tournament. He was, uh, I, I like, I, I look back, you know, and you go, well, yeah, he wasn't perfect. No, I don't think he was. But I mean, goodness, like he, he was incredible, he is incredible, still is incredible. He's gotten more incredible as I've gotten older. Uh, like, oddly enough, like he's gotten better at the whole thing. Uh, but he was phenomenal before. But somehow this God is in a good mood phrase. It didn't sit. And then I, I thought, you know, what's the alternative? And why would I arguably be more comfortable with the fact that he might not be in a good mood, that he might be perturbed rather than at peace, that he might be frustrated rather than fine, that he might be haughty rather than have a heart that's whole that's predisposed towards his people. You know, when you start looking at it, you read through the scripture and you say, you know what? The weight of it is that Lamar was 
exactly right. You see, in John 15, 11, in the upper room, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he is telling them he's about to go away. He says, I've told you this, and he's telling them that the Holy Spirit's going to come so that you will be filled with joy, yes, that your joy will overflow. And the whole context of that, again, is the Holy Spirit's coming and I want you to abide in me as I abide in you. And, you know, apart from me, you can't do anything. Apart from me, you can't do anything. I want you to be connected to me so that you can achieve what you're destined to achieve and live out the purpose for which you were designed, he says here, uh, so that your joy will be full. Which, by the way, is the same model that Jesus lived because he even said in John 5, 19, uh, the son doesn't do anything on his own. And, and he says, apart from the father, I can't do anything. And then he says, I want you to abide in me so that you can live your purpose. Why? So that your joy would be full. In Matthew 25, 21, he told a story about a master who went away and then left his servants with different uh, amounts of gifts and talents. And when he came back, uh, two of the servants had grown what they were given. They'd multiplied it. One had just buried it. And to the ones who had grown it, who had taken what they were gifted and uh, leveraged it on behalf of the master, uh, one of them leveraged it and made a lot. One of them leveraged it and made not as much, but like they, they did the best they could with what they had. He said to them, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much enter into the joy of your master. You see, again, like Lamar was right. God is in a good mood. He's Macarios, as Paul said. He's happy. Jesus wants to, us to abide in him, uh, which, by the way, he's joyful, and that's going to rub off on us as we're there. We abide in that so that we can find and fulfill what we're destined to do. And as we do that, our joy overflows, uh, as we grow what we've been given, we enter into the joy of the master. Even this, like Nehemiah 8.10, if you go back to the Old Testament, when they were reading the law for the first time after they had been kicked out of the land, and that was because of stuff they had done, they had been punished. They all come back and they're reading through the law and they start wailing and they start moaning because they realized that they had broken the law years ago, uh, decades ago, and that's why their ancestors were kicked out of the land, and they realized they had not been keeping the law. They had been violating some of the rules. And Nehemiah went and said, no, 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 hold on, hold on. No, no. Even now, even now where you're seeing like your own failure, go home and enjoy choice food. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The context of that is, hey, uh, God's shown you this stuff for your good. He's pleased with you. He's trying to protect you. He's trying to lead you forward into your purpose so that you can live not only a life that matters, but actually a life of love, of peace, of joy. Do you see? My prayer for you as I close out is that the Lord would bless you, he'd keep you, be gracious to you, shine favor upon you, that you would see, sense, and feel everything that aligns, as Paul said, with the Makarios, 
happy, joy-filled God. And as you do, may your joy flow. Grace and peace. I'll see you again soon.